I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Amy McKinnon, an award-winning national security and intelligence reporter at Foreign Policy. Amy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. What drew you to being a reporter and what made you interested specifically in Eastern Europe and Russia? They're kind of two separate journeys, I suppose. I um, I studied Russian as an undergraduate and at 17, when I was deciding what to study at college, I think I just chose on a whim and I was like, Russian, that sounds fun. And that began my kind of interest and, and journey in, on, in Eastern Europe. And then reporting wise, I think like a lot of journalists, I was really drawn to the, not crusading, but um, the ability of, of, of good journalism to kind of expose wrongdoing and shine lights on dark places. Those two interests kind of merged when I was living in, in Central and East Europe and I began freelancing. Um, I'm from Scotland, although my accent doesn't really give it away much anymore, but doing pieces for BBC Scotland and the Scottish media. And then I did a fellowship in Moscow where I worked with a start, then a startup called Coda Story. And that was my first reporting job. And I, I led their coverage. They did a deep dive on Russia's crackdown on the LGBT community. And so I, I led their coverage on that from Russia. What is it? been like reporting on some of these issues from afar as opposed to when you were based on the ground in Moscow? It's definitely a real adjustment having kind of done both and having had a foot in two worlds. The way I look at it now is there's so much U.S. foreign policy making and national security thinking around Russia and Eastern Europe that my main focus is how do these two worlds intersect? How is Washington thinking about the region strategically in terms of its own defense? Where does it rank in the level of importance? What's the new administration's kind of approach to the region look like? All the diplomatic questions that fall under that. And, and that has actually proven to be a pretty big beat, which keeps me busy, especially these days. I can only imagine that the past couple of weeks have been really crazy for you as a journalist that's focused on this region. You've been publishing it feels like every couple of days on this subject. From your vantage point, where are we now and where do we go from here? I think, and I say this with a really heavy heart, I think we are at the still at the very beginning of this crisis. There was another round of kind of talks today with between the Ukrainians and the Russians. And it was very clear from the demands made by the Russian side that they have no interest in, in backing down on their very maximalist demands from Ukraine. So they were asking that Ukraine recognize that Crimea is Russian, that Zelensky stepped down as president, that Ukraine write into its constitution that it will never join any bloc such as NATO or the European Union. And we've already kind of been around this merry-go-round many times before in the build-up to the war. And it's very clear that Ukraine is not going to budge on these issues, certainly at least not now. And so I think, you know, whatever Putin's strategic aims were in starting this war, I think he, you know, does not feel anywhere close to having achieved them. And I worry that in the weeks ahead, things are going to get more violent, more messy, a lot more civilian casualties. Already, you know, we're seeing comparisons, people comparing, you know, asking questions like, are the Russians going to use strategies like they used in Syria or in Chechnya, which were just two really, really vicious savage campaigns. I mean, I often kind of wonder why 
the second war in Chechnya and the counterterrorism campaign was not seen as more of a red flag as to what Putin was capable of and willing to do. Grozny was described by the UN as the most destroyed city on earth. And that was his own citizens. I mean, Chechnya is part of Russia. And if you're willing to do that to your own people, what are you willing to do to other countries? So I just, I think it's unfortunately way too premature at this stage to talk about where this goes and what it will look like. I think the only direction is bad, unfortunately. What does it look like in Russia right now? I know they've been kicking out a bunch of independent media outlets, but what is it like on the ground? Have you heard or or do you know for average everyday Russians? Not a lot because everyone's left. And those that are left, the means that I would normally talk to them with have, have been shut down. I'm probably not the best person to answer this question, but it it is startling how many people, everyone I know, I think most of the people I know are, you know, from that kind of verified Moscow circle of of journalists, et cetera, but they're all left. I mean, people are walking across the border into the Baltic states. I think it's a little, probably a little bit too soon for your average Russian to really be feeling the bite of the, of what is actually the, the biggest stuff, the financial sanctions. I mean, the ruble has just gone nuts. You know, it was 150 to the dollar today. It was just kind of getting worse and worse progressively throughout today. But I feeling the bite in terms of salaries and purchasing power, that's going to take a little bit more, a few more days, a little bit of time. I think some of the most immediate shocks are going to be just more kind of lifestyle things like Netflix shutting down, TikTok not letting people upload videos, Facebook being taken offline, Twitter, certain websites are being blocked. But it's going to take, I think, a few weeks and months for the full ramifications of what Putin's decision has kind of brought home for the Russian people for that to sink in. How do you think about the role good information plays and sort of the shutting down of a lot of those Western or independent news outlets to, to give the Russians information about the war? I, th- I mean, with information, there's always a question of access, but then it's also a question of, well, do people want to access it? I mean, unquestionably, yes. I mean, this is devastating for the Russian information environment, but there's also, you know, millions, tens of millions of Russians that watch state TV, which pumps out the most absolutely noxious, really aggressive. I think I, unless you've really seen it, I think it's actually hard to kind of convey how aggressive some of these shows are and just the demeanor of the hosts and the way they talk and the kind of rhetoric they use. And there are tens of millions of people that, that, that tune in for that. Mostly they tend to be same trends that we see with TV in this part of the world, right? It's, it's older people, you know, young people get their, either don't get news or they get it from social media or YouTube or online or whatever. But yes, I mean, these, these websites shutting down, independent media shutting down is of course devastating, but at the same time, there's tens of millions of Russians who've been happy to consume state media. And that's partly been what has helped to kind of sustain and fuel Putin's base. And a lot of people weren't even accessing this stuff when it was in Russia. You know, it, it really was a pretty rarefied group of people of kind of a bit more liberal, a bit more educated, a bit more Western orientated, but not, not exclusively. I'm talking in very broad brush terms here. Do you have a sense of what the sentiment is on the ground among Russian citizens or the range of sentiments rather, because I'm sure it's diverse? 
I think going back to your question earlier of, you know, what is it like reporting on on Russia and Eastern Europe from Washington, having having been there? And I think I've learned to not answer questions like that. Um, it's been a few years since I was last in Russia. And, and even when you're in Russia, right, most ger- Western journalists are almost all based in Moscow. And even then, it's like trying to report on what's America like from DC. I mean, you get no sense of the sentiment. And so it's also, I think, just too soon to tell how 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 this is going to shake out and how the Russians are going to feel about this. That, I think, will evolve depending on how the Kremlin spins it, how much information people get about the war, about soldiers' deaths, and when and how the economic kind of ramifications of this begin to bite. But I wouldn't want to, at this stage, try and try and guess how that will be. You wrote an article recently that had the title, Has Putin Lost the Plot? What did you mean by that? I think myself included, but a lot of people who've followed Russia for a long time, a lot of Russia analysts generally regarded Putin to be disruptive, but rational, quite calculating, very opportunistic. You can see that particularly, I think, in his foreign policy over the past 10 years, that they've been extremely quick off the blocks to during the political upheavals within Ukraine in 2014 to kind of swoop in and basically seize Crimea, to ferment these separatist republics in the East, to stymie Ukraine's ambitions of ever joining NATO and the European Union. And they were able to kind of pull that off with just a, you know, a few weeks, a few months notice. You know, similarly in Syria, you know, through a campaign which was devastating for the Syrians, but as far as the Russian armed forces go, it was fairly light touch because it relied on aerial bombardment, have made themselves indis- indispensable to to Assad and propping him up. And that is, you know, slowly kind of been the kind of entry point for Russia's return to the Middle East. And so Putin has long been quite good at doing these like quite kind of targeted strikes, which over the years have kind of played out to great effect. But I think with something as huge as an all-out invasion with no convincing pretext, even domestically, I mean, there was not a great deal of effort expended to try and justify this war. I think people were asking, you know, is he kind of losing it? You know, what kind of information is he getting up the up the reporting food chain from his lieutenants. And does he actually, I mean, there's a lot of questions about does he actually understand Ukraine? And they seem to have grossly misunderestimated how much resistance they were going to face. And so I did see a lot of people commenting, and I definitely felt this myself, of saying maybe he's not quite the shrewd chess player that, that we all thought he once was. How much of this is the US and the West trying to kind of mind read an elderly? Russian man, and how much of it is something that we can practically find out because of how closed the system is? So I learned some interesting things reporting that piece. One is that the CIA has a whole center for the kind of analysis and study of of leaders, and I think particularly authoritarian leaders, where they have doctors, psychiatrists, they have analysts to study these leaders and their speeches and their kind of mannerisms. And they stay, they kind of follow the same people for many years. And so they get this real depth of understanding. And so they can detect kind of subtle changes that the rest of us might not. I have no idea, I should say up front, if this has ever been tried with Putin, but in the past during the Cold War, 
even efforts were made to gather kind of physical material from world leaders. So if they're staying in a hotel, putting things in the plumbing, which will basically catch what comes out of their toilet to try and analyze their physical health. And then, of course, there's, you know, espionage. But Russia is is known to be a hard target like China. And I think, you know, I spoke to a former CIA ops guy who said that even in their best days, getting people close to Putin was exceedingly difficult. And there's been public reporting in recent years about how U.S. intelligence's kind of insights at that level into Russia have, have been diminished through various exposures. And so then all that's left is kind of to analyze their actions, analyze how their current actions stack up with, with their past behavior. And I think that's what made a lot of us question that this just seems to be so different and of just such a different order of magnitude based on what we've seen from Putin in the past. I think it did raise questions about how he's receiving and, and kind of perceive, how he's receiving information and how he's kind of perceiving and interpreting that. So as you've mentioned, there's some concern that this conflict will sort of take the same track as Chechnya and Syria, where it was just intense shelling. And it seems to be going that way, unfortunately. Are you concerned at all with the potential influx of foreign fighters on both the Ukrainian and the Russian side? Are you concerned that Ukraine will just become a, a failed state like Syria and we're just going to see a war for years and years and years? I haven't kind of allowed myself to think that far ahead. And I think one of the things I'm just realizing personally throughout all of this is like the limits of my own imagination, but also the limits, I think, of just the human mind of conceiving what horrible events will actually look like. I was in Kiev the beginning of February, just about two weeks before the war. I left about, about a week and a half before the war began. And I was at the time basically sure that Russia was going to invade and that it was going to be very ugly given the size of the forces that were there. I frankly was actually found it very frustrating, the rhetoric that I was hearing from Ukrainian officials who were saying, oh, we don't see the intelligence the same as the US does. We don't see the imminency of the threat. Preparations just were not being made at kind of large scale population level. People were preparing on an individual basis, but there was not kind of widespread public messaging of if this happens, this is what you need to do and what you need to prepare. But I also, at the same time, didn't imagine what it would look like. I don't know. I, I kind of struggled to put it into words. It's still totally insane for me to see the images, even of Kiev, of like Krushatik, which is the main kind of the big boulevard that runs through the city center. I stayed on a hotel right on that street. I still could never have, even knowing that a war was likely about to happen, I still could not have imagined seeing troops in uniform and these roadblocks and people wandering around with guns. Like it's still, similarly, I cannot kind of conceive what this may look like or, or, or what Ukraine would look like as a kind of failed state after years of war. I mean, partly it's almost just kind of too terrifying to imagine, but I think it's also just too early in the conflict. Why was Ukrainian leadership slow to recognize the imminence of the threat? I think there's a couple of things. I mean, the U.S. was very aggressive in sharing its intelligence with the Europeans and with the Ukrainians. There are longstanding concerns in the U.S. about infiltration of the Ukrainian intelligence services by the Russians. And so... My understanding is that basically they were getting the kind of 
the bottom line analysis. Like this is what we see, this is what we think may happen, but they weren't kind of showing their working of how they reached those conclusions in case that would expose US sources and methods. And I think that's very confusing, right? Like if somebody's coming to you and saying, look, we think you're going to be invaded. What's it? Well, tell us how, how do you know this? Like that would be your first question. And so I think Ukrainians were slightly baffled by that. But also, I mean, someone told me recently that, you know, Ukraine has pretty good sourcing at the lower levels of the military and and those in those level of troops that were built up at the border, because the troops themselves didn't know, the Russian troops didn't know, Ukrainians weren't picking up on that. And so that might be why there was a very quick switch all of a sudden in the Ukrainian position in the kind of in a couple of days before, because that's when those troops that were on on the Ukrainian border that were built up, that's when they were starting to get the message from the top saying, guess what, guys, you're going to war. And the Ukrainians began picking up on that. I'm kind of hypothesizing here, expanding, but because those troops didn't know, the Ukrainians weren't able to pick up on it through their own intelligence is what I've been told. And I think also, I mean, there's a multitude of factors. I think part of it is people seem to very much, everybody from officials, Zelensky said this, down to your man in the street, almost always the first thing anyone would say was, we've been at war with Russia for eight years. They were very keen to convey that, that this is not new for them. And I think much as the US definitely saw this as something way beyond as a much greater order of magnitude, which is is unfortunately what it has turned out to be. To some degree, I think the Ukrainians were just seeing it within the context of the of the war and the disruption, the eight years of war and kind of disruption uh, that they'd had from Russia and not as something a wholly different level of, 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 of threat. It seems to me like a lot of Americans are discovering President Zelensky for the first time as a leader. And since you've been covering the region for a long time, I'm curious how your perception of him has evolved since the time you first started covering him and extending until now and and his recent leadership. I mean, I haven't covered Zelensky kind of play by play in the way that reporters who've been based in Kiev have, but... I was in Ukraine in summer of 2019, which was after he was elected president, but before the parliamentary elections, when his party went on to win a landslide. I think it was the first time in Ukraine's post-Soviet independent history that a party had, had won a kind of supermajority. So they had this incredible mandate as well to push this really ambitious reform agenda. And it was, you know, I was talking about this earlier with my editor, you know, it was a really exciting time. There was a real buzz in the air. There was all of these new politicians were coming forward, really kind of with high hopes for reform. And there was new parties being formed. And Zelensky was seen as, it sounds absurd, although I guess less absurd after the Trump administration, but the idea of a complete outsider, a complete novice, he was a comedian of becoming president. Sounds crazy, but I think a lot of Ukrainians appreciate that because they're seen as being outside. He was seen as being outside of the system, that he couldn't have been corrupted and co-opted because he was fresh. He was new to the to the political world. My overriding sense is that Zelensky does want to do good, that he does genuinely believe in these reforms, that he is genuinely invested in them. But his execution has been a little bit two steps forward, one step back, one step to the side, a step forward. Like it's been a kind of a waltz rather than a an easy path forward. But they were making progress. That's what makes this war just all the more painful and all the more tragic. You know, Ukrainians have have fought so hard for everything that the country has achieved. 
you know, civil society, the, the strength of this democracy, people have already given their lives for these things and, and they were making some good strides and, you know, it's just all going to be set back by, by the war. I mean, if the war was to end tomorrow, I mean, it has had an incredible galvanizing effect on Ukrainian society. And so if there is a way out of this war, which doesn't see the country completely and utterly devastated, I think that will be an incredible legacy in a perverse way. This this unity and this kind of incredible sense of self-identity that that it has it has created. I mean, Ukrainians were were pretty unified and a very proud and patriotic people anyway, but I think, you know, it's nothing like, there's nothing like a war really to kind of bring people together around a united cause for the country. Moving east to west a little bit, what do you make of NATO's response sort of consolidating, coming together themselves, but limited kind of fits and starts in helping Ukraine? I think there's just a whole world of knock-on effects that this has created. Like, there's also just been this immense shift in Europe and the kind of Euro-Atlantic community, again, in the space of two weeks, which I think is going to take us months, maybe even years to fully understand how this is going to play out. Right now, there's obviously very intense calls from the Ukrainians for a no-fly zone. NATO, the US, has, has been pretty quick to rule this out. I a little bit worry that if things get really, really savage, like truly go like fully kind of Aleppo, Chechnya style, that eventually maybe the West will, you know, NATO, the US will feel compelled to to impose some kind of limited no-fly zone, maybe over Western Ukraine. I don't know, but I worry that it will be too late. You know, I was at a fundraiser yesterday and um, for Ukraine and the head of one of the country's political parties, Kira Rudik, spoke over um, Zoom to the, to the gathering. And, you know, she kind of basically said, you know, you'll do this eventually, but will it be too late? You know, will it be like the Nord Stream 2 debate, right? Like it took the worst half and like that's a debate which has dragged on for years and it was seen as being absolutely impossible to stop Nord Stream 2 until it wasn't because the, something completely ugly and extraordinary had happened. And I, I, a little bit, I'm having deja vu with debate about the no-fly zone as well. But I fully appreciate that it's a wildly sensitive area. I mean, it's essentially tantamount to war, right? Because NATO or US fighter jets would have to be willing to shoot down Russian fighter jets and take out Russian anti-aircraft missiles, some of which may be based in Russia. Like there's a whole order of things in which there's obviously deep, deep concern about that spiraling to just become World War III. So it's not an issue to be taken lightly either. But what do we do? Where does this go? I mean, I think that's I don't know what it looks like if things get really, really ugly and there's just immense, intense aerial bombard- bombardment. What do what does the West do? And what do you make of the moves by some former Soviet and Eastern European countries? Finland might be interested in joining NATO. Moldova, Georgia have submitted an application to join the EU. Do you think this is pushing those states westward? And do you think it will work? Georgia is a very interesting case, and that's the story that I'm working on this week, because you would kind of think that having had their own war with Russia and having their own issues with separatist territories, which have been backed by Russia, that they would be lock, stock and barrel, the most supportive of, of the Ukrainians. 
But actually, they've kind of been pretty cool. They've kind of held off backing European sanctions. The Ukrainians even recalled their ambassador to to Georgia in protest. And so it a little bit looks like, I mean, Georgia has has long wanted to join NATO. That's been part of their official policy for a long time, even under, under the current government. But it's hard not to see it as a little bit of opportunism, to be frank. What is your assessment of the Biden administration's response to date? And are, have there been times in which you have felt as a, as a journalist, you know, moved to sort of advocacy versus objective reporting? And, and how do you, I don't know, how do you balance some of those impulses? So I'm not big into star signs, but I'm a Libra. And apparently one of our traits, you know, the sign is like the, the scales, the balance. Even in high school and fights among my friends, I'm always the kind of character in the middle who's like, oh, I see that point of view. I see that point of view. I feel like that in this. I think the Biden administration did a remarkable job in the run up to this of raising the alarm, trying to make everyone aware of what was about to come and the magnitude of what was about to come, of sharing that intelligence. I mean, the speed at, and the speed and the unity of the sanctions which were unveiled in the very first days after Russia's invasion is all credit to Washington for getting everybody on the same page and on board. And the unity among them is amongst those sanctions is, is really pretty incredible and sends a very profound message to the Russians. I think there's always this tension about arms transfers and of arming the Ukrainians. And that's something that Washington has just long been fairly careful of. I mean, until the Trump administration, you know, the U.S. wasn't even sending anti-tank javelins. That was a decision. You know, the Obama administration were, were worried that the Russians would see it as provocative. Trump administration made the decision. And I think even in the build up to this, I think there's been exceedingly careful about trying to parse what do the Ukrainians need? What, what support can the U.S. give? but not having Russia start World War III because they feel they feel so provoked. I think Putin has proven pretty capable of provoking himself. I mean, he started a war without any kind of legitimate cause. And so I don't know if a few extra stingers are going to make the difference. But that's obviously an ongoing and, and lively debate, I think, within the administration. So I think from a policy perspective, I think their position makes sense. And in some cases, like I said, on the sanctions and intelligence sharing, I think it's been really quite masterful. But then you speak to Ukrainians and you see these images of, you know, like that family that was killed at the side of a road yesterday by a bomb and that photo that was on the front page of the New York Times this morning of the dead kids. And, you know, you see images of vulnerable, premature babies in these kind of makeshift clinics and basements of hospitals under Russian bombardment. And you just you can't not ask, what can we do? We should be doing more. Both things are true. And I think that's um, one of the main takeaways of covering foreign policy in the past few years is that two things can be true at the same time. You know, is, is the Biden administration doing a good job? Say yes. Can they do more? Yes. And I would guess that trying to convey some of that nuance and complexity to readers is, you know, is part of the job. And one of the things that I can imagine is tricky about it. It's complicated. I mean, these are really thorny 
issues. There's when you're talking about arms transfers, there's technical things to consider. There's legal things to consider. There's, you know, do you have to bring in Congress? How do you transport the like there's just so, so many things to consider, like the current question about how do you how how to get more fighter jets to the Ukrainians. I mean, there's just a whole string of issues involved in them trying to kind of even at the kind of intense pace that that you know officials will be working at trying to kind of get those things going in a matter of weeks is just it's just an immense, immense task. Something you were saying was that Obama didn't necessarily provide all the different weapons capabilities that the Biden administration is doing. It seems to me that we may have miscalculated the sort of security insecurity paradox with Russia, where they're going to be more aggressive and we're going to be worried about escalatory steps. Do you think we're still doing that now where we're a little too worried about escalation? And then what, if anything, do you think this means for our other great power foe, China? I think the war has been a real wake-up call for a lot of people who thought that Putin could maybe be reasoned with or that you know, if only we just weren't too aggressive, he, he may pull back or he may not do the, the kind of the very worst thing. I mean, that was the Biden administration's approach for the first six months. And I have definitely seen them kind of take some heat from that by Russia watchers. You know, the the order of the day for the first several months of this administration was they wanted a predictable and stable relationship with Russia. That was the kind of the buzzword which we heard, buzzwords which we heard over and over again. And um through no fault of their own, but the relationship has been anything but. And so I think that, yes, I think the war has been a little bit of a wake-up call that Putin, like I said, is capable of provoking himself. And it's not only, I think, the US, which is kind of going to go through this realization, but some European, European countries as well. I think particularly France, the Germans as well. The Eastern Europeans have for years, the Central East Europeans have for years been warning about what they saw as the threat coming from Russia. And I think weren't taken seriously enough. I think that's going to be one of the kind of in all of the kind of looking back and soul searching, which I think is going to happen as this goes on. I think one of the questions will be, did, did we heed the warnings of the polls of the Baltic states enough about what they saw from Russia as a threat? I think there was a tendency to downplay it as kind of lingering trauma from the, from the Cold War and, and not a very modern and contemporary threat to, to stability on the continent. Clearly, I think there is intense consideration of, of how high risk the situation is, how volatile the situation is, the risk for misunderstanding, the risks for escalation, and of trying to contain that to stop this from spiraling into World War III, because that's is kind of what's at stake here. I think there's deep nervousness, particularly in the Baltic states, that that Putin won't stop with Ukraine. You know that he that he may have aspirations for for other territory, and I think that that's going to be an ongoing tension in in the response of how, of going forward is the assessment of that threat of whether he's going to stop with Ukraine, whether he will go forward, and how does NATO as the unified alliance, how does the European Union, with all the kind of various interpretations and stakes within that, interpret? In this shifting landscape, how do we now assess the threat that Russia poses to NATO and the EU, and how do we respond to that? And that's going to be balancing, I think, these fears that that he's not going to stop with Ukraine, but also concerns about getting into an escalation spiral. 
And you asked about China. I think the unity and the, the force of the response to this, particularly the sanctions, the pullout of energy companies, the pullout of, of businesses, I'm sure that's going to be giving Beijing some pause for thought right now. I think that will have sent a very powerful message about what it may look like in the event that they were ever to make some kind of move on Taiwan. Trump made this statement last week that, you know, if he had been in office, the situation in Ukraine would never have happened, which is kind of a perplexing idea anyway, given that he was such a supporter of Putin. But, you know, I, I'm reluctant to ask you to like engage in counterfactuals, but to what extent do you think the sort of nature of American leadership was or were, was not a determinant of, of Putin's calculus here? To what extent does it depend sort of on also who's sitting in the White House in Washington? I will defer to what I've been told by people who are much smarter than me on this. In the run-up to this, I did a piece about, which kind of looked at why now? Because Why now is Putin doing this? Why now is the buildup? Because these were all of the grievances that we've heard over the past three months about NATO expansion and this kind of European security order. Well, these have been in place for years, decades, in, in, in many cases. So why now? Why 2021, 22, did he seem to wake up and be like, actually, I think now is the time to, to, to change these. And there's a whole kind of multitude of factors as to why that is, I think. Partly the West being divided, beset by its own challenges, partly the pandemic, the strength of the Russian military now after several years of reforms relative to the strength of the Ukrainian military, all these kind of factors. and. And yeah, I mean, one one element to that, I think, that I heard and I, I find a convincing argument is that I think Putin saw the Biden administration come in, saw the intense focus on China, saw Biden as somebody who was willing to make take unpopular decisions, or maybe not unpopular decisions, but take decisions that risked intense blowback, such as the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and maybe misinterpreted and thought that he could cut some kind of grand bargain deal with Biden about Ukraine, basically say, if you cut a deal with us about Ukraine, you, you can go on and, and, and do your grand kind of uh, strategic focus on China. That was clearly the wrong interpretation on Putin's part, but that is a theory which I have heard from experts that I spoke to on the Russian military, on Russian strategic thinking, and one that I, I can kind of see how that, how that makes sense as one of the many factors which may have, have played into this. And the other thing on Trump, I would say, is much as for all of Trump's kind of bizarre, warm overtures towards the Russians, I, I think they had a lot of trouble weeding him. And I, I do wonder whether that would have given them his erraticism, would have given them pause, whereas Biden is clearly much more predictable not predictable, but kind of more I suppose, normative a U.S. president than, than Trump was. So we've been talking at a pretty high strategic level. If you were trying to talk to the average American or your family back in Scotland about why this matters to them and not just, you know, it could be bad, what do you say? A few things. I mean, firstly, I think. There's a lot in the Ukrainian story that Americans can relate to. That kind of, or that a lot of countries can relate to. The 
throw off the yoke of British oppression, you know. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to kind of stumble into my like still quite patchy knowledge of US history, but there's definitely some parallels there of of self I mean everything that America stands for, right? Freedom, self-determination, democracy, respect for human rights and civil liberties, all of those things are something that Ukrainians have fought bitterly for for decades now two revolutions, many lives lost, eight years of war. And they are still, I mean, it has just been so remarkable. The courage and the fortitude that Ukrainians have shown throughout all of this. And I, you know, was saying to my colleagues, I'm entirely unsurprised. This, you know, the, these stories of grandmothers throwing jars of pickled tomatoes to down Russian drones and of farmers towing away tanks with tractors. I mean, this is absolutely everything that I have expected from the Ukrainians. You know, and they are the front line of Europe as well. And by extension, they are the front line of the kind of the European, the Euro-Atlantic security arena. And they are fighting this fight with the Russians alone. And they're prepared to do that. But the least we can do is to pay attention, to understand, to encourage our governments to act and support Ukraine where they can and, you know, and the kind of second argument I make when, when I get asked this is, it's about it's about precedent. I mean, if we don't draw a very, very sharp line in the sand at a major land invasion, the types of which we've lulled ourselves into the false sense of security into thinking that we were over in Europe, that this was behind us, it's such a dangerous precedent, not only for Europe, but for the rest of the world. And if we don't respond forcefully, I mean, it just such a kind of direct attack on all of the norms and ideals which we've tried to put in place globally over the past 70 years. And if that's not defended, it's, you know, it just opens Pandora's box for a whole slew of questions about, well, who does this next and what does this next? I think nobody put this more eloquently than the um, Kenyan ambassador to the United Nations in his speech to the Security Council, when he said, look, Afri- a lot of African countries didn't choose their borders. They were drawn by the colonists and they divided, you know, they divided nations, they divided ethnic groups, they divided linguistic groups. And, but, you know, collectively, African countries said, you know, we have to kind of deal with this because if we don't, it'll just be endless war and endlessly drawing our boundaries. And I don't, you know, I can't can't put it better than that. Those are the norms which we agreed to as a global community and which Putin has just assaulted. So with that, let's move to the final segment of our show where we talk about something political or cultural that we have been following this week. I think we're going to end up with an all-book finale. Zoe, why don't you kick us off? I want to highlight a new book that was published just at the beginning of March by great scholar and also a friend of mine, Nina Yancey. It's called How the Color Line Bends, The Geography of White Prejudice in Modern America. And the book explores the connection between prejudice and geography and place in modern America with a focus on Louisiana. And uh, it's really fantastic uh, and challenges, I think, a lot of existing literature on the topic. So I suggest that everybody take a read. Amy, what uh, book are you recommending us today? So the last book, which I read before I went to Ukraine, before the war began, and I had actually kind of mental capacity to read, 
was Invisible Child by Andrea Elliott, who's a New York Times reporter. And I think she won the Pulitzer for it last year. She did, yes. It is a just absolutely astonishing piece of reporting. It's nonfiction. It follows the follows eight years in the life of one young girl, young woman in in New York City called Dasani, who's homeless. And it follows the story of her family and just their life in in New York City, in the kind of in the public housing system and you know, going through the kind of homelessness system, through shelter system. And it's just it's I think she calls it like immersive reporting, but she just so embedded with this family and their life and their challenges and the level of detail in it is just absolutely breathtaking. It's as a journalist, it's it's hugely inspiring, but it's also just hugely revelatory about how profoundly flawed aspects of these systems are and just how difficult the lives are of the of the families that are within them. But there's also just incredibly warm moments as well of, of how despite it all, you know, because at the center of this book is this, I'm blanking now on how many siblings Dasani has, but she has several siblings and, and her parents and and how through despite all of this, they kind of they hang together as a as a very tight knit family unit. And it's just it's beautiful. You'll I, you know, I drove my husband crazy just like reading whole pages of it out loud. I cannot recommend it enough, no matter what your interests are, foreign policy, whatever. It's just, it's such a breathtaking book. It's undoubtedly going to be a classic. So I was going to talk about George Mason University basketball as the regular season wraps up and how proud I was of our team and of our first year head coach, Kim English, despite our uh, under 500 record. Uh, but I got inspired by my compatriots here to also talk about a book. Earlier this year, I read Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End by Atul Gawande. It's about dying and helping your family members and, and in the book, patients towards the end of life. Uh, recently, I've had a lot of family members and sort of extended community members pass away. And in a world where nothing is sure and certain, and especially in these kind of dark times, it's important to really cling on to what matters in life. And I think the book really gives some interesting thoughts to that, specifically around medicine, but I think generally as well. So I'd highly recommend it for, for anyone who is alive now and might be dead later. So with that, Thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and follow Amy at AK underscore Mac. If you are a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by Ukraine's National Agency for the Protection Against Corruption. They'd like to remind our Ukrainian listeners that you do not have to declare captured Russian tanks on your taxes. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.